Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about the Chronicles of the Eastern Zhou Kingdoms. When I was in school in Taiwan, when I was in, I want to say, the fourth grade, my favorite book to read, surreptitiously, under the desk, was The Romance of the Three Kingdoms. A little context... I wasn't surreptitiously reading a book when class was going on, and I was supposed to be listening. We used to have nap time in school, when, for an hour after lunch, all the kids were supposed to take a nap, with their faces resting on their desks. I always found it impossible to sleep like this, sitting in a hard wooden chair with my face against a hard wooden desk. At the same time, I was eager to find out what happened next in the Three Kingdoms. So, during nap time, I would have the book open on my lap and read it while pretending to sleep. During the same time, my teacher, whose job during nap time was simply to watch over the kids, was reading a book of his own. I remember it was Dong Zhou Lie Guo Zhi. The Chronicles of the Eastern Zhou Kingdoms. The Chronicles of the Eastern Zhou Kingdoms. Let's call it Chronicles for short. We classify the Chronicles as a novel, but that has a lot to do with a gap in translation between English and Chinese. The Western novel obviously developed independently from Eastern ones, although some have argued that. Murasaki Shikibu's *Tale of Genji* qualifies as the world's first novel. In English, the word "novel," of course, means new—a new literary form from back when it was new. Daniel Defoe's *Robinson Crusoe* is often deemed the first English-language novel, and notably, Crusoe is a protagonist who has to try. To build his own house on a desert island, using whatever parts he can find—a metaphor for constructing a new literary form in a language that, at the time, had no precedents for it. In Chinese, the term we translate as novel is xiao shuo, literally small talk, and the term has a venerable lineage. It first appears in a paragraph in Zhuangzi, that Taoist philosophical tract from the Warring States era, in which the term is used literally: small talk, inconsequential talk. The term then entered the Chinese classification of Zhuangzi Baijia, the Hundred Schools of Early Chinese Intellectual Pursuits, and the school of small talk meant those who wrote down tales. Heard in the bazaars, on the streets, in taverns, and so on, which could be fables, legends, hearsay histories, or other stories. And the early Chinese looked down on this school of small talk. The Han Dynasty historian Ban Gu, in his book of the Han, wrote about. Nine streams and ten schools. The ten schools were 
the Taoists, the Ruists or Confucians, the Moists, the pacifist school of philosophy, the Chinese equivalent of Sophists who focused on debate, the Legalists, the school of the Yin and the Yang, the diplomats and strategists, the eclectic school, the agriculturalists, and finally the school of small talk. According to Ban Gu, each of the nine schools belonged to what he called a stream, meaning that it was worth studying, except the school of small talk, which Ban Gu deemed not to be worthy of a stream. Over time, the school of small talk, the collectors of stories from all corners, came to include both those who wrote unofficial histories and biographies, and those who wrote outright fiction. In fact, the modern Chinese term for novelist, xiao shuojia, is identical to the phrase that the ancients used to mean the school of small talk. But in any event, the early prejudice against the school of small talk meant that it would take many centuries for fiction writing to become a respectable pursuit in Chinese culture. But okay, so the Chronicles is classified as a xiaoshuo, a novel. But is it a novel in any sense approaching the modern usage? As I said, the school of small talk included those who wrote unofficial histories, those who collected true stories. The Chronicles, as its name suggests, retells the history of the spring and autumn and warring states periods from 789 BC to 221 BC. The spring and autumn and warring states periods were technically the second half of the Zhou dynasty, the Eastern Zhou, with the Zhou king still around. But in practice, by this time, the lords of the various domains behaved as independent monarchs. And the various lords, eventually kings, and their respective domains, eventually kingdoms, fought and intrigued against each other endlessly until the final establishment of the Qing dynasty, the first empire. As you can imagine, with a time span like that, and with a historical context like that, the story involves a constantly changing cast of characters, little of whose interiority is discussed or can be known. In this connection, we may compare it to major Western historical novels. I, Claudius by Robert Graves, for example, or Memoirs of Hadrian, or the Alexander novels by Mary Renault. These novels all focus on individual protagonists, Claudius, Hadrian, Alexander the Great, and give us their interior thoughts that couldn't have been recorded in history books. The Chronicles just doesn't do that. The Chronicles hews closely to actual history. Although it didn't begin this way, to understand how the Chronicles evolved, we have to think about its authorship. Sometime 
in the 1560s or 1570s, a writer named Yu Shaoyu wrote a fictionalized history of the Spring and Autumn and Warring States periods. Then, in the last decades of the Ming Dynasty, so early 17th century, a more famous writer, Feng Menglong, born 1574, took Yu Shaoyu's earlier work and rewrote it. A quick word about Feng Menglong. He went on to edit a trilogy of short story collections and to write some of the stories himself. His works also included other books and plays and poems. He lived until 1646, two years after the Manchus came through the Great Wall and declared the Qing Dynasty. As of 1646, the Qing was still consolidating its power. Feng Menglong spent his final days urging his countrymen to fight the Qing, and some say he was ultimately killed by Qing troops. Anyway, so Yu Shaoyu was not a stickler for historical accuracy, but Feng Menglong was. So he went back to the proper history books, in particular Shi Ji or Records of the Grand Historian, and this other book Zuo Chuan, often translated as the Zuo Tradition or the Commentary of Zuo, and he cut out any bits in the chronicles. That Yu Shaoyu had simply made up. Later in the 18th century, the critic Cai Yuanfeng gave the chronicles another once-over, editing it and adding an introduction, a reader's guide, and commentaries before republishing it. It is this version of the chronicles that is now in common circulation. And in his reader's guide. Cai Yuanfeng emphasized that the chronicles was sufficiently historically accurate that the reader should read it as a history book and not a work of fiction, even if it observed the superficial conventions of prose fiction in the Ming and Qing eras. We've mentioned the records of the Grand Historian enough times on this podcast. Let's talk for a moment about the commentary of Zuo. Why Zuo? Who was this Zuo? Most major Chinese writers and historians, starting with the Grand Historian Sima Qian himself, believed the author of the commentary of Zuo was a man named Zuo Qiuming. Zuo Qiuming was a historian employed at the court of the Kingdom of Lu. Toward the end of the Spring and Autumn era, the Kingdom of Lu was also where Confucius was from, and the earliest mention of Mister Zuo appears in the Analects of Confucius. They might have been contemporaries, and they might have known each other. Zuo Qiuming was also said to be blind, a fact that makes me think of the Greek tradition of. Attributing blindness to both Homer, the great poet, and to Tiresias, the prophet of Apollo. John Milton, author of Paradise Lost, was also blind. So maybe there is something to the Western tradition that the blind can see things the seeing cannot. 
that outward blindness can grant some kind of insight that results in literary greatness, or even the capacity to see the future. And so maybe Zhuo Qiuming's blindness gave him greater perspicacity that allowed him to write his history. I should note, however, that scholars starting as early as the Tang Dynasty have also doubted Zhuo Qiuming's authorship. A number of scholars proposed various alternative candidates as the true author of the commentary of Zhuo. Many thought it was by an author from the Warring States period, after Spring and Autumn. Some thought the true author might have lived as late as the Han Dynasty. The early 20th century scholars Qian Mu and Zhang Taiyan thought the real author might have been Wu Qi, otherwise famous as a military thinker, second only to Sun Zi himself. But for now, let's stick to the traditionally acknowledged author, Zhuo Qiuming. Why is it called the Commentary of Zhuo, at least in English? Well, the Commentary of Zhuo is built on the basis of Spring and Autumn. Spring and Autumn is a history book written or edited by Confucius himself. Except, of course, there is once again controversy over whether this is true. But Spring and Autumn, the book, is why the Spring and Autumn era is called that. The Spring and Autumn era is the time period covered by the book Spring and Autumn, more or less. So the commentary of Zuo can be and has been seen as commentary on Spring and Autumn by Confucius, supplementing additional details and making certain corrections. But the opposite view seems just as valid, the view that the so-called commentary of Zuo stands alone as an independent work of history. Certainly it has been one of the greatest and the most important works of history ever written in the Chinese tradition. On this podcast, I've often compared the grand historian, Sima Qian, to the Greek historian, Herodotus, the father of history. But the commentary of Zuo is by no means inferior. And since the commentary of Zuo predates the records of the grand historian, which was written during the Han Dynasty, maybe this whole time I should have compared Sima Qian to Thucydides, and the author of the commentary of Zuo, Zuo Qiuming, is more like Herodotus, the father of history. There was one big difference, though, between the ways in which the commentary of Zuo and the records of the Grand Historian were written. The records of the Grand Historian tells stories centered around characters, personalities, starting with the prime actors of Chinese history, the emperors, and before them, the kings and the legendary rulers. Then the book moved on to major non-monarchical persons who influenced Chinese history, including important families and other key personalities like generals and ministers, and even roving knights. The commentary of Zuo, in contrast, 
tells us what happened year by year, one year after another. There's benefit to this approach, of course. Everything is in chronological order. But there is a major downside. Some stories take many years to unfold, decades even. So if you're reading the commentary of Zuo, sometimes it's hard to piece the stories together. The denouement of a story may occur decades after the opening chapter, and by the time you get to the ending, you may have forgotten how it connects with the beginning. And that is what makes a quote-unquote novel, like the Chronicles of the Eastern Zhou Kingdoms, with its high degree of fidelity to real history, so useful. It reorganizes the events as recounted in a commentary of Zuo into digestible, even entertaining, narrative form. So you can read something that is a novel as a matter of entertainment value, a non-fiction novel, as it were, while getting a very accurate account of history. And, in fact, many of the stories from Chinese history that we tell on this podcast are recounted in the Chronicles. Okay, on that note, this has been MODG. Thank you for listening.